Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. In the year 1543, shortly before his death, Nicholas Copernicus published his magnum opus, a book called On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres. It's a mouthful. And in it, of course, as you know, Copernicus formulated a model of the universe which placed the sun rather than the earth at the center. He had uh, actually formulated the model decades before, but he didn't publish it for fear of the kind of reactions that it might have. He shared it privately with some individuals and a few of his friends even uh, made lectures in other universities based on his findings, but But he understood the gravity, not uh, a pun there, but he understood the gravity of what he was about to say or what he was about to propose. The implications were profound and widespread, astronomically, physically, philosophically, and even theologically. There would be a, a major shift so many things would have to be reconceived once the proof of Copernicus's theory was accepted. And so it has rightly been labeled the Copernican Revolution. Well, today in our passage in Romans chapter 9, Paul is establishing a similar kind of revolution. A kind of approach, a kind of understanding to the Scripture and to God's overall plan that for some people is so radical and revolutionary, it shifts the focus of everything they have read and thought about God's plan, about His outworking, about His grace. At least in the minds of many of the Jews and even many of the Gentiles who would have read what Paul has to say, it was like Copernicus's, uh, Copernican's theory, it was in itself simply stated It wasn't necessarily an an elaborate, uh, uh, I guess you could say, summary, but the implications in themselves were profound and widespread. In some ways, you can't understand anything that Paul is saying here uh, without understanding that simple little statement. In other ways, you might say you can't even understand what God's doing in the Old Testament. Throughout all of Scripture, or maybe even in all of Romans itself, without understanding what he is saying in these verses. Just to sort of recap what he has already told us, we couldn't do it very easily, but but he has told us so far that God has made salvation available to all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike, although the gospel is preached as he says in Romans chapter 1, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, his message throughout has been that God is indiscriminate in the way that he offers his salvation. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your moral standing is. It doesn't matter how guilty or not guilty you are before men. All people stand before God under judgment, and every one of them equally need the same solution at the same level as everyone else, and it's accessible only one way, by faith in Jesus Christ, so that anyone who is separated from God, anyone who feels themselves abandoned by Him, uh, left out by Him, under His judgment, any of those things, 
Every one of them, Jew and Gentile alike, have the same and equal access to God by faith. Well, it's, uh, as we said last week, that basic thesis that runs throughout the book, while familiar enough to each of us who might have been raised in the Christian context, would have been radical for so many Jews. And it would have raised a number of questions A number of objections, some of which Paul has already addressed throughout the book of Romans, but as we come to Romans chapter 9, really getting at the heart of what would have been an objection for so many Jews. If what Paul has said so far is true, if God has revealed his gospel to the Jew first, but then also to the Greek, if what Paul has said so far is true, that Both Jews and Greeks have largely been rejected by God. And thirdly, if particularly for the Jews who have received God's special revelation, His law, and still they have rejected Him, failed to keep it perfectly. And if God has offered salvation to all who believe, because all have stood before God as sinners, if there really is no distinction in this salvation... All who confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead will be saved. If all of that is true, for many Jews it doesn't seem to correspond to what they were taught or what they read in the Old Testament. What they had understood all of their lives about the special place for the Jewish people in God's plan. So it led them to ask What about all of those passages? What about all of those promises? What about all of those Old Testament scriptures? We read last week, for example, Deuteronomy 7, 6. You are a people, God said. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In other words, God drove the distinction for Israel. Apart from all other peoples, you are a special people to me. So you had statements like that about Israel's unique place in God's grace, and yet much of what Paul has said in this book already has been really an indictment against Israel, For failing to follow God, it has been an indictment placing them not under God's favor, but under His wrath. So much of what He has said has been unmistakable, and it leaves most of the Jews in Paul's day in the exact same position as the Gentiles, rejected by God because of their unbelief. But then you have all of these passages all of these blessings, all of these promises, some of which you remember in verses 4 and 5 we looked at last week, Paul himself references to the Jews, to the Israelites belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, all these things. You can't deny all of these unique gifts, unique promises And all of that scripture reiterated over and over and over again. Here's the thing. Paul has no intention of denying it. He would never deny it. 
To deny that would be to deny the very God who wrote the scripture, to say that he's unfaithful, untrue to his word, and it would undermine the very foundation of Paul's own gospel, which had been revealed by God. In fact, he doesn't deny it at all. What he does is he goes right at the heart of the problem, the problem of Israel's unbelief that might have been created by their perception of how to read these scriptures. And he addresses this current state of Israel's unbelief in verse 6 when he confronts the issue head on and says, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. That word being a reference to all the things he just mentioned in the previous two verses. The word here, by the way, for failed is a word that's used in other places of Scripture to talk about leaves falling off of a tree or flowers whose bloom fades away or even ships that veer off of their course. And so Paul is saying it's not as if these promises have somehow started out in one direction and then veered off of their course or somehow just faded away into the dark. They are very, very much still central to God's plan. In fact, Paul understands the seriousness of even suggesting that these things have faded away. These promises have somehow failed. And his basic defense is to go right at the heart of the problem. And he states, if you will, the very premise in which he's going to, or by which he's going to solve it. As far as the promises of God to Israel, he tells us in the second half of verse 6, you have to understand that there are two Israels. This is the way he says it. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is Paul's Copernican revolution. The shift which would have transformed the whole worldview and reading of so many Jews and even so many Christians. There are two Israels as it relates to the Old Testament prophecies. And to prove his point, Paul is going to take you and I on a journey throughout chapters 9 and 10 and 11, quoting Old Testament scripture after Old Testament scripture to show exactly what the Old Testament said. In other words, even in giving all of these precious promises and blessings to Israel, the message was never hidden anywhere in the Old Testament. It was plain for those who would read it that within Israel, there are two Israels. And understanding the way that this was taught in the Old Testament will help us tremendously to understand not only what was happening in Paul's day, but to understand what's happening in our own day, to understand what has happened with the nation of Israel throughout all of time, their current state of unbelief, their current state of rejection by God, all of this clearly presented in the Old Testament over and over again as Paul will show us. And what we're going to see is simply this, that the faith that Paul has been making central throughout the rest of the book of Romans, that faith governs even the way that we are to understand Israel. That you are, no matter whether you're Jew or Greek, no matter whether you live in the Old Testament, New Testament, or times after the Scripture, you are always 
only in relationship to God to the extent that you believe in him, or I should say on the basis of faith. Everything that we understand about Israel's past, also everything we know about their present and even what we know about their future. It's all governed by this. Because with all these Old Testament quotes that Paul's going to really expound for us, he really will return ultimately in chapter 11 to these promises so that we can understand them now according to the theological framework that he's going to give us. And he'll explain that their current state of unbelief, their current state of being rejected by God will not always be the case. Their current state is not permanent. It is not irreversible. As Paul will come back and say in a a very similar question over in Romans chapter 11, down in verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, he says. In other words, their current state of stumbling does not mean that they have fallen out of God's plan forever. Absolutely not. He addresses their current state of failure right there. He says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean. You see, Paul recognizes that the current state of unbelief, the current state, we might even say, of failure on the part of Israel, and all that God is doing through it to bring about even Gentile faith, for all that is evident before them, Israel's current status is not their final state. He anticipates a change He anticipates something that will be different, a future full inclusion, as he says right there. Talks about in chapter 11 of God's plan of salvation like an olive tree. And most of Israel, most of Israel at that point had been broken off. But as he says, eventually God is able to graft them back in to accomplish his will. So Paul understands all of these Old Testament passages, all of these Old Testament promises. He understands all the problems that are posed in the minds of so many Jews who are hearing his gospel and reading all these things. And and he's willing to give serious and honest and well-supported answers to their questions, answers that grapple not only with Israel's current unbelieving state, but also with their future hope. And, by the way, there are a lot of people who approach these issues and think somehow that maybe we should avoid them altogether. That's not Paul's approach. He wants to address them head on. There are a lot of people today who would tell you that when it comes to all of those Old Testament passages, when it comes to all of those prophetic sections of scripture, all that stuff that, that, that so often just to get, sort of gets categorized under what we might call eschatology. All of it is just so cryptic and so difficult. The best thing to do with it is to sort of take it to the, the back of our theological closet, 
stuff it away somewhere out of sight, not to be brought forward because it is like so many old and outdated garments, an embarrassment to the Christian church and really beyond our ability to understand. Well, Paul doesn't take such an approach because he understands that these are important matters. They're not secondary matters. These are primary matters. The hope of Israel, the future of the nations alongside of them, all of those promises and prophetic passages in the Old Testament, these things are not just about the future of Israel. They're about the character of God. They're about the Word of God. They're about His inerrant and infallible Word. They're about His faithfulness. And so anyone who is interested in defending the character of God and the character of His Word must necessarily be interested in how these prophecies work themselves out. Now it needs to be said, before we really get into the details of this, that in dealing with all of these issues and all these Old Testament passages, Paul never denies that the promises were given or that they were given to the Jews. He never suggests that when God spoke in the Old Testament about Israelites, that he didn't mean Israelites. Certainly, God's salvation has come to all kinds of people, both Jew and Gentile, on the basis of faith. Certainly, all those who have faith like Abraham are Abraham's spiritual children. Certainly, God has a glorious plan in His kingdom for all those who He calls His people, who He calls His children. But Paul never suggests that by the inclusion of Gentiles in God's work, that somehow that retroactively cancels out what he had previously said to Israel. The very fact that Paul even bothers to write Romans 9 through 11 proves that point. His purpose here is not to come back and deny that Israel was ever an elect nation. It's not to somehow say that they have now all been subsumed within the doctrine of justification by faith and the church. That was his point. He's already made it. But his point is to come and to say that Never has God ever intended to work in Israel solely on the basis of their ethnicity. What he's saying that it has always been about faith and it always will be about faith. In the past, in the present, even in the future. There are two Israels as it relates to God's promise. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There is, in other words, an Israel within Israel. There is then an Israel that is merely of the flesh and an Israel that is of the flesh but also of faith or of the Spirit. But that's not saying that the Israel of the flesh has somehow been replaced by a different Israel. 
It's not suggesting that Israel is no longer simply those who are descended from Israel. Or another way to frame this, another way to ask the question in the way that it's commonly thought of, is is simply to ask, when Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, is, when he asks that question, is he somehow trying to include Gentiles in that second group of Israelites? Is he somehow trying to say that now everyone who has faith is a part of Israel? Is that the solution to how God's promises are being fulfilled? Is that the solution to simply claim that anyone who has faith, including Gentiles, are now the recipients of the promises that in the Old Testament appeared to be clearly spoken to the nation of Israel? As we're going to see, the answer to that is no. Paul's not saying that anyone who has faith now belongs to Israel. He's simply saying that within the nation of Israel, there's a second Israel, a smaller subset of Jews, a remnant, as it's sometimes called, who are God's true Israel because they have faith. They are joined in the church by believing Gentiles, but those Gentiles do not replace them. There are a number of reasons that we say that. First of all, just looking at what Paul has already said to us in the first five verses We take note how he has established, if you will, the parameters of the whole discussion. He's clearly defined a group of people to whom he's talking about, his fellow countrymen, as he says, other Israelites. Secondly, to say that Gentiles have taken the place of Jews in God's promises would not really address the whole problem to begin with, because the problem is that the Old Testament appeared to clearly direct these promises to national Israel in distinction from all other peoples. And so for Paul to take the position that Gentiles no longer really uh, are are, uh, some distinct group, for him to take the position, I should say, that Gentiles somehow are placed together with believing Jews as some new Israel would really not answer the very theological problem that he even raises. Thirdly, we just simply take note that as Paul develops his argument through chapters 9 and 10 and 11, his argument and all of his examples have to do with God's selection of Jews within the nation of Israel. In other words, when he goes on to explain what he means when he says that not all Israel is Israel, when he goes on to explain that, he doesn't give a bunch of Old Testament examples of how Gentiles were being included with God's people, although there are examples he could have given. He simply gives us stories of how God made a distinction within the physical descendants of Israel between those who were truly his and those who were not. Fourthly, it is that as Paul develops his argument, especially in chapters 10 and 11, he consistently continues to speak about Gentiles as distinct from Israel. He doesn't sort of introduce the premise that not all Uh, who are descended from Israel are Israel and then move forward speaking about Israel 
as if it is a combined entity of Jews and Gentiles together. Instead, as he moves through these next few chapters, just like you see in the Old Testament, by the way, when God is speaking about the future of Israel, he always speaks about Gentiles as a separate group from the Israel that he's talking about. He maintains that distinction. Never confuses them. The two peoples always spoken of as the people of God, but distinct in the manner in which God is bringing about His glory through them. He'll speak, for example, of Jews being broken off of God's tree of salvation and Gentiles being grafted back in, but then He speaks of Jews being grafted in again. In other words, if the Gentiles are the new Jews, why would you graft in a second group of Jews? And then he'll finally affirm the prophecies that Israel will believe. Their current state is different from what it will be. And if their current state is simply that all believers are Israel, then there is no subsequent change coming. But if they're a separate group who are receiving the grace of God at some future time uh, in correspondence to what God is doing among the Gentiles, but not identical to it, then it makes sense that they would have a changed status in the days to come. So when Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, he's not speaking about a totally new Israel. He's speaking about a smaller group of believing Jews within the larger group who currently do not believe. He's simply correcting the mistaken notion on the part of so many Jews that their inclusion in the promises of God is guaranteed to them solely on the basis of their national identity. See, that was their assumption. Now, you may remember this. When John the Baptist came preaching in Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, he, he has thousands of people who are coming to him from among the Jews. And what does he say to them? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. But this would have been their defense. If anyone came and anyone brought an accusation, if anyone suggested that somehow they needed repentance, that somehow they had a broken relationship with God, if anyone came along and confronted them in any of these ways, their stock answer would be, we have Abraham as our father. And what John the Baptist's message was, what Jesus' message was, what Paul's message is, what is the message of the New Testament, is that, that this sort of ethnic identity, this national identity, is not solely the basis of any kind of favor with God. It is and always has been within that ethnic identity, but it is on the basis of faith that God works among His people. You may remember, by the way, Paul even had dealt with this back in Romans chapter 2 when he was bringing his major indictment against Israel for not keeping the law. He confronts them 
for being those who go around and say, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, when they're turning around and doing the very same things. And at the end of that chapter, Paul ends it by saying, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. Romans two twenty eight and 29. None of that is a denial that the ones he's speaking to or the ones he's speaking about in Romans chapter 2 are ethnic Jews. But Paul is simply bringing to them the same message that had been given to Israel throughout the Old Testament. That in order to be a true Jew, you had to be one both outwardly and inwardly. If you have your Bibles, in fact, turn with me for just a second because we need to understand this. Deuteronomy chapter 10. This was uh, sort of the pinnacle book of Moses to the people of Israel when the law had been given and now is being reiterated in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. At that time, the Lord said, cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke and you will put them into the ark. And so this is the giving, the second giving of the law. But I want you to look down with me at verse 12 in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I commanded you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set His love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. God told Israel whenever He gave them the law, He gave them the message as clear as day, the same message that Paul gave in Romans chapter 2. It wasn't anything revolutionary. That if you want to be my true Israel, if you want to be the kind of people I'm calling you to, then you're going to have to be a Jew who's not just one outwardly and a circumcision which is outward. But you're going to have to be a Jew who's one inwardly and his circumcision is of the heart. You can move on down to Deuteronomy 28 because even in this giving of the law, God already knew and He already anticipated their failure that many, many would reject him. Deuteronomy 28, verse 45, we read this sad prophecy. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. You shall be a sign and a wonder, excuse me, they will be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. 
in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. And the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. And it shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. See, God gave them this and he told them what was required of them, but he knew that they had not the capacity to change their own hearts. He knew that although they needed to be Jews on the outside and they needed to be Jews on the inside, he knew that they didn't have the capacity to do the latter. He knew that they couldn't change their own heart. He couldn't circumcise their own heart. But in light of all that, flip over to Deuteronomy 30. And you hear that in light of even those things, God wasn't going to abandon them. It says in Deuteronomy 31, And when these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, you will call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And... Return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I commanded you today with all of your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God, your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God, listen to this, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you might live. See, this has always been the issue. God never hid it from Israel. That they needed to have a circumcised heart. They couldn't be just a Jew on the outside. They had to be a Jew on the inside. And no Jew in his right mind would have read the words of Moses and concluded, oh, that must mean that I have to be a Gentile. Oh, that must mean that None of this stuff about Israel and other nations where God has scattered us and bringing us back, none of that means anything anymore because all I got to do is just sort of be something on the inside and the outside no longer matters. No Jew in his right mind could have reasonably understood Moses' words to mean that. But what they should have understood is the same message that Paul was telling them, same message Jesus gave them, that from the very beginning... God had always expected that a Jew is not just one who is a Jew outwardly, but one who is a Jew inwardly. So Paul's point over in Romans 9 is no different than any message in the Old Testament. That's really what he's saying. When, when people come along and say, oh, well, if what you're preaching 
is true, then the word of God must fail. Paul is turning around and telling them the exact same message that is given time and time again in the Old Testament. It's not that the word of God has failed. It is that Israel has failed. It's not that the word of God has failed. It is that they were still rebellious. This happened exactly the way God said it would happen. And a true Jew has always been a spiritual Jew. The simple problem is that all the way up to Paul's day, all the way up to our own day, Israel has never been spiritual. Other than just a remnant, they've never been a spiritual people. Just like Deuteronomy, just like Moses, they hardened their heart against his law over and over again. They were cast aside, sent into captivity, broken off from the olive tree. But just like Deuteronomy 30, Paul says they can be grafted back in. They can be brought back into God's plan. Now all that's a very long introduction to Romans chapter 9. Yeah, you got another hour here for us to... No, but it's necessary for us to properly really understand everything that Paul has to say because if we don't understand ultimately where he's going with his argument, we wouldn't understand the signposts that he gives us along the way. If we didn't understand the big picture, our vision would sometimes become myopic and distorted when we're looking at the details of his argument. And so Paul's basic reply given in verse 6, is the framework that he's going to work out for the next three chapters. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he begins explaining this Israel within Israel in the following verses. First of all, from the negative side, that physical descendancy doesn't guarantee covenant inclusion. And then secondly, from the positive side, that sovereign grace has always been necessary. For covenant inclusion. It's the same message as Deuteronomy. Same message throughout the scripture. And illustrated in the patriarchs. And we're going to look today just very briefly. At the first of those two points. First of all in verse 7. Paul begins with an Old Testament illustration. That physical descent. Doesn't guarantee covenant blessings. He kind of continues his argument from verse 6. And in verse 7 he says, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Paul's, basic, uh, Paul's point here is very basic but very important, especially since he establishes it out of the Old Testament, and not only out of the Old Testament, but from Abraham himself, which anybody would have recognized. If you're going to talk about who Israel is, you begin with Abraham. He is the founding father, and from him all Jews come, both uh, physically and spiritually even. And so Paul begins here, but he begins by challenging this most basic assumption of Jews that, that they imagined that because of their physical descent from Abraham, 
They imagined that this, uh, this was the source of their covenant inclusion, the source of their spiritual benefits. And Paul challenges that in verse 7, saying, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. To be a child of Abraham in a physical sense doesn't necessarily mean that you are a recipient in a spiritual sense of his blessings. And to prove this, he quotes verbatim from the Septuagint, from Genesis 21.12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Paul's conclusion in verse 8 is, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. I mean, he quotes what every Jew would accept, you know, that only through Isaac, not through Ishmael, only through Isaac, true Jews have come. He, they all accepted that, but he extrapolates a principle. He expounds it theologically in a way that they had never thought of. And the principle is this, that what this means is that not all the children of the flesh, not all Abraham's physical children are necessarily children of God. Any promises God made to Abraham, in other words, do not automatically pass to all of his physical descendants. And the point is clear enough. That means that Ishmael, Abraham's other son, who was born to him by his slave girl, Hagar, did not receive these promises. Even though he was Abraham's child, and even though Abraham circumcised him with the sign of the covenant. You see, Paul's drawing this theological principle that there is within Abraham's physical line certain people who are not heirs of the promise. There always have been. Or as he says in verse 8, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. What does that mean? The children of promise. You see, Paul's made a step here. he's, He's moved from talking about one child, Isaac, to now talking about all kinds of children, children of promise, a whole host of children, plural. And he draws this parallel with Isaac that's very important because you know the story. Isaac was a child of promise. He was promised to Abraham. Abraham struggled to believe it. He was given this promise of a child when he was 75 years old and when the child didn't come out of his own frustration and, uh, and uh, lack of patience, he went in and slept with his maiden girl, Hagar, and gave birth to Ishmael. But when Ishmael was born, God told him, this isn't the promised one. This isn't the one that I promised to you. And so he continues to wait until he was 99 years old, And God commands him to go and lie with his wife and she conceives and she bears him a son named Isaac. And Paul's drawing on this one key theological point that even when it appeared that God's word had failed, even when it appeared that God's covenant promises to Abraham had not come to fruition because the promised child had never been born, Even when all of that appeared to be true, God still had a future. God still had a child of promise who was to come. And Abraham had to believe it. And it was credited to him as righteousness. 
And so too with the Jews in Paul's day. It might appear to them as if the word of God had failed. It might appear to them that all of these promised blessings that were supposed to come to Israel never came to fruition. And so what are they to do? Just go out and find a Hagar. Try to manipulate and and, uh, manufacture some sort of results. No. They are to trust that God still has children of promise. They may not be identical with all of Abraham's physical descendants, but they are still there in God's grace and in God's plan and God's design. The, the current physical descendants around Paul aren't necessarily the ones who will receive the blessings, but that doesn't mean that, they, that, that God doesn't have children of promise yet to come. Now someone might say, yeah, but you're talking about Ishmael, and he was born illegitimately. He was born, and his mother was a slave girl, and so he was to be rejected, right, for that reason. I mean, he had questionable heredity. That's what they would conclude after the fact. It certainly wouldn't clear to Abraham on the front end. But even for those people, Paul understands that that objection might come, and so he makes a second point, a second illustration, a second principle, a story about two sons who were born not only from the same mother, but even from the very same moment of intercourse. Twins. Jacob and Esau. Neither one of them seeming to have any advantage over the other. And yet, God still carried the promise through one of them and not through the other. And it ultimately illustrates Paul's second point that sovereign grace has always been necessary for covenant inclusion. We'll have to wait for that for next time. I just want to say a word of you to a few of you who are here today and so much of this stuff is way over your head. You came here today because a friend invited you or family member invited you or maybe you've been coming for a while and you're not even asking these kinds of questions. You're just asking the basic questions. Where is God? Why does it seem like He's rejected me? Why do I feel so guilty? What's the same reason? It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It's the same reason. Because God is not asking for some outward reformation in your life, some presentation to Him that's going to impress Him with your good works. God is asking you the same thing He's asked of the Jews, that you have a circumcised heart, a new heart, a brand new you on the inside. If you're here today and that's never happened to you, if you're still just a child of the flesh and no longer... And, and not a child of promise, as it were, or a child of the Spirit, we might say. You can be. Scripture says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave here having just simply listened to some lecture, some message about some technical things in the Scripture, but that you would leave here today reconciled 
to your maker, to your God. Ask him and he'll give you a new heart. He'll change you within and he'll make you his own child. Would you bow together with me in a word of prayer? Father, we were humbled again by the recognition of your powerful working, bringing about your purposes through centuries and millennia, but your word never failing. It's a testimony to your power and to your wisdom and to your grace that you work in such ways through the unbelief and the rebellion of so many people. Lord, today we pray that you would work in the hearts of those who don't know you, in the hearts of those who are here asking questions about you. We pray, Father, that you would open their eyes, draw them near, make them your own, give them hearts to confess you as their new Lord, to believe in their heart that you raised Christ from the dead. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.